The book of Romans, if you're using one of our pew Bibles, is page 883. And as always, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. Last week, we kicked off our series. And this week, we will continue the introduction. And we're going to look at Romans 1, 1 to 7, which is really one long sentence. Last week, we looked at 1 and 2. We'll finish it out. So let's read together Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So last week we introduced Romans, looked at the man, that was Paul, he's a slave of Christ, he's an apostle, he's set apart for the gospel. We looked at the the beginning of the message. We saw that this gospel is from God. We saw that it was promised beforehand by the prophets in the Holy Scripture. And this week, we're going to continue to look at the message, and then we'll look at the mission. So first, the message in verse 3. This gospel is of God. This gospel is promised in the Scripture. And this gospel is about Jesus. Shouldn't surprise us. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son. This good news, this glad tidings are about the Son. They concern the Son. It centers on Jesus Christ, which we again learn it's not about us. It's not good news because it has to do with us. It's good news because it centers on Jesus. It focuses on the Son. It concerns the Son, and that's what makes it good news. A verse we all know, God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. He who has the Son has life. The gospel is the gospel concerning the Son of God. But notice it's not just the Son. It also says there in verse 3 that he's the Son who was descended from David according to the flesh. We've heard a lot about David recently, I think, with Luke 2 and Advent and then Ruth. And the fact that this Son is descended from David, I think, is important for three reasons. First, it reminds us of the message of Romans and really the message of the whole Bible, and that is God saves sinners. God justifies, he declares in the right, not the godly, Romans 4 is going to tell us, but the ungodly. And we see that even in the ancestry of the Son of God. Remember David, we all know David. David became Israel's greatest king, but let's not forget the bad side of the story. David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. Which remind us that God saves and God uses people who are sinners, which is all of us. Second, the fact that Jesus is descended from David is important because Jesus fulfills all the promises made to David. Jesus is David's greater son. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. A couple of weeks ago, we read from the Davidic Covenant found in 2 Samuel 7. Remember, that's where God promises David a son who would have a kingdom that would never end, an eternal kingdom. Psalm 132, verse 11, actually summarizes that Davidic covenant really well. Let me read it to you. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. 
one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. It's a summarization of the promises of David. We saw this in Ruth. Remember, the point of Ruth was really the last word of the book. David. The whole romance of redemption ends in the fact that the line of David continues. The story of the Old Testament is when will this deliverer come? The one that's in the line of the woman, the one that's in the line of Abraham, the one that's in the line of Judah, the one that's in in the line of David. And I just read several of these a few weeks ago, but I want to read a couple more just so you feel the weight of how important this is. Descended from David is no small detail. We celebrate it every Christmas with verses like this one, Isaiah 11, verse 1. In the future there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Who's Jesse? It's David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The prophet Jeremiah 23, verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. He shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. Ezekiel 34, I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David. Remember, David's long been dead when these promises are given. There's going to be a new David and he's going to be the great shepherd. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken a few chapters later in Ezekiel. My servant David will be king over them. He shall have one shepherd. Jesus is the king in the line of David. Jesus descended from David. In other words, again, Jesus is Israel's Messiah. That's what Paul's wanting us to know here right from the beginning. The good news concerns the son who descended from David. Third reason its significance is it shows us that Jesus was truly human. He was descended from David according to the flesh. Why was he truly human? We were actually covering this the other day in family worship. This is the new city catechism. Parents, grandparents, if you don't have one, you ought to get this. We've got them in the book table for like a dollar, maybe two dollars. We were just covering this. Question 22, why must the redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. That's why he had to be human. So that he could obey on our behalf and suffer on our behalf and sympathize on our behalf. So it's vital that this redeemer be both God and man. The gospel concerns the son who's descended from David according to the flesh. Verse 3, look at verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection. Now, there's a false teaching I'd like you to know about. It's called an adoptionist view of Christology that says Jesus actually wasn't the Son of God until the resurrection, and they'll use this verse. That doesn't work. Jesus was the son of God from all eternity. In fact, we see it in this very passage if we look at the verse before. Look at verse 3. He's always been the son of God from all eternity concerning his son. He was the son already who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God now in power. It's not that he wasn't the son of God before. It's just now he's the son of God with a new exalted status. The son of God from eternity becomes the son of God in power. By the resurrection. So he's the son of David and he's the son of God. Right there in this verse. The son of David and the son of God. Truly man, 
truly God. He is the God man. He is God incarnate, God made flesh. This is historic Christianity, historic Christian belief. In fact, there was a council. Usually what happens is there's false teaching and then the church gets together to combat the false teaching. In that sense, heresy often precedes orthodoxy. Well, in the fifth century, there was some false teaching about who Jesus was. This kind saying, well, he's not truly God. Well, all the churches, we call these the ecumenical council, meaning every leader from every church in the world at the time came together. It's called the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And they came up with a creed that all Christians believe. Let me just read one line from it. It says, we then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. The church has always believed this. This is who this son is. He's the God-man. And verse 4 says he was declared the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the father raised the son by the spirit. The spirit is the one who raised. The spirit gives life. And the fact that this son was raised from the dead removes all doubt about who he is. He is all authoritative. He is the son of God in power. To use the language of the letter to the Ephesians, God raised him, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Because he's the son of God, because he is who he is, of course he's the Lord. Descended from David, the king. Brothers and sisters, he must be reckoned with because of who he is. His identity necessitates that we orient our lives around this king, around this son. And so we learn quite a bit about the message here in these first few verses, don't we? And we'll spend the next 16 chapters fleshing them out. Where's the gospel come from? Well, we saw it's the gospel of God. What attests to the gospel, we saw the Holy Scripture, the Old Testament. The substance of the gospel, verse 3, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice the story that's contained there, just in those few little verses. God made his people, God kept his people, God promised to his people. God is now keeping his promises by sending his son, who is God and man, who is a descendant of David in fulfillment of the scriptures, and he dies and he's raised by the Spirit. Here, don't we really have the story of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right here in these two, three verses? We have the Gospels in a nutshell. We've got a Reader's Digest on the Gospels here in these first three verses. So that's the message that he wants to introduce us to. Now let's turn to his mission. Romans 1, verse 5. Our Lord, through whom... We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So through Jesus, he had received grace and apostleship. Grace, of course, through Jesus, we've all received grace. We receive grace. By its very nature, we don't earn grace. We receive grace. And really, that could be a summary of the whole book of Romans, the whole message of the Bible, the undeserved benevolence and favor of God toward his sinful people, grace. And we've received grace. He's received grace and apostleship, which we looked at last week. 
he was called. This status of apostle is not something he aspired to. He received it, as did all the apostles. That's why Jesus says in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. He received apostleship. And then what's the purpose of Paul's ministry and what's the purpose of our ministry? Look at verse 5 again. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about, maybe you should add, in order to, here's the purpose, in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The goal of ministry is to bring about the obedience of faith. Now, what is that? I think it means the obedience that springs from faith. The obedience that flows out of having faith in Jesus. The obedience that true faith produces. Obedience is not a consequence, excuse me, is a consequence of saving faith, not a condition to it. Obedience is a consequence of saving faith, not a condition to it. it. Another way to say that is it's a result of being saved, not a requirement for salvation. Obedience is a result of being saved, not a requirement to be saved. Faith is the root. Obedience is the fruit. And this is really important. We have got to get this. This relationship between faith and obedience is extremely important for two reasons. On the one hand... I think many people basically equate them, especially unbelievers. I think they, what is Christianity about? Well, it's about obedience. So they just think faith and obedience are the same thing. So if you ask many secular people, what is Christianity about? What is Christianity's message? Well, obey God, be good, be a moral person. That couldn't be further as we're going to see again and again in Romans. The message of Christianity is not good. In fact, Romans 3 says there are none good, no, not one. The message of Christianity, there are none good, but God in grace has stooped to us by sending his son to save us. But even believers, I think, often equate faith and obedience. And they live in this performance mode, thinking that God is only pleased with them when they're having good days and only when they avoid sin. They think their standing with God is dependent on how well they're performing. So they, even believers, can sometimes put their hope and trust in their own obedience rather than in faith in what God has done on our behalf. And so they're going to sin and have bad days and they're going to despair because they think it's all riding upon their shoulders instead of the shoulders of Jesus Christ, our substitutes. They sin and they think God is an irritated stepdad rather than a father of love who's not surprised by our sin. In fact, that's the reason he sent his son. He knew we would sin. More of this to come in Romans, but that's one reason. But on the other hand, especially here in Abilene, people tend to define faith as just this mystical feeling, just faith by itself, faith in faith with no object, just this mystical, hopeful feeling. Faith is just this mental assent to certain facts. This was me growing up. You'd ask me from any time from probably five years old to 18 years old, do you believe in Jesus? I would have said yes. I would have said yes, I believe in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. But if you looked at my life, there was zero obedience to that Lord. So many people think faith is just this intellectual assent, just this mental agreement with certain facts. But that falls short. 
The Protestant reformers really helpfully define faith in three ways. Really, it's knowledge, agreement, and trust. They had these fancy Latin words for them, but basically saving faith consists of knowledge. Yeah, that is believing the data. We need to believe certain things that intellectual assent is necessary. It's just uh, not enough. So we need knowledge, but not only that, we need agreement. We do need that intellectual assent. So I know about the truths of Jesus, and I agree with those truths, but that's still not enough. The third part is really what sets saving faith from other definitions of faith and that is trust. That is commitments. It's a faithful entrusting of ourselves to this Lord. So, for example, if I have a chair here, it's one thing for me to know that that chair will hold my weight. It's another thing for me to know and trust and believe that if I sit down, that chair is going to hold my weight. It's an entirely different thing than to actually put my weight on the chair. We need knowledge, we need agreement, but we need trust. That's what saving faith is. And the New Testament warns again and again and again about the reality of false faith, of false conversion. Someone that says they're a Christian, but are not actually born again. In fact, our Lord had some of the most scariest words in all of scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter seven. He says, not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, So there's a category of people who are calling Jesus Christ Lord. Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. They're going to be busy with very, didn't I do this and didn't I do that? And Jesus is going to say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Scariest verses in the Bible. These people had a kind of faith. They're calling to the Lord, Lord, Lord. They're even busy with religious activities. But it was a false faith. They weren't truly converted. They were false converts. They didn't do the will of the Father. Is Jesus teaching salvation by works here? No. The issue is, did they have true faith? Did they have genuine saving faith? Faith, because if they do, obedience will come from it. The obedience which flows from faith that Paul wants to bring about. James talks a good bit about this. If you want to turn over there to the book of James, chapter 2. He speaks of this false faith that so many in our Bible Belt culture have. James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless 
So there's this category of people that have a dead faith, a useless faith. You believe that Jesus is the son of God, you do well. So do the demons and they shudder. Intellectual agreement is not enough. Children, this is important for you to hear. Hopefully you're hearing the gospel a lot at home. Just saying I agree is not enough. You've got to make a commitment to the Lord where you begin the lifelong journey of trusting in the Lord and turning from your sin. James says even the demons believe. Knowing certain things is not enough. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin said even Judas heard all of Christ's sermons. True faith will lead to obedience. Saving faith will lead to a changed life. It will lead to works. And there's a lot of dead faith in Abilene, Texas, y'all. People who say they're Christian people, maybe even attend church on Sundays, maybe do some religious activities, but their lives are not committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And sadly, pastors and evangelists are to blame often for this, for just focusing on getting decisions, even sometimes emotionally manipulating people so that we might get more notches on our belt and trying to draw people down and, and sign a card or walk an aisle or ring a bell, none of which is in Scripture. Nowhere in Scripture are we called to make converts or make decisions. We're called to make disciples. That's the call, not just trying to get notches in the belt, but trying to see people transformed by the gospel. The call is to make disciples. And remember in the Great Commission what Jesus tells us to be about teaching them to obey everything that I have taught. So when we have faith in Jesus, it's faith in Jesus as Lord. There is no faith in Jesus as Savior without faith in Jesus as Lord. So believing really is a submitting to his lordship. It begins when we first become Christians, but then it needs to be a lifelong commitment of submitting to his lordship. That's what it means to be a Christian, one who confesses and follows, always imperfectly, but strives to live under the lordship of Jesus, under his authority. But we've settled for what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace, just a mere faith in faith without life transformation and easy believism. But here our aim is to bring about the obedience of faith, true conversion that leads to lives committed to following Jesus. We've got to get this right, especially in the Bible Belt. So we're saved by faith, but true faith works. It's the way Calvin put it. He said, we're saved by faith alone, but that faith is never alone if it's genuine. So Galatians 5, one of the big messages of Galatians is the same of Romans, that we are justified by faith alone, not by works. But then towards the end of the letter, he says, Circumcision, uncircumcision doesn't matter. Our ethnic background doesn't matter. What matters is faith working through love. So the question is, do we have saving faith? Genuine faith. Because if we have saving faith, our lives will be being transformed. Again, Luther put it this way. He says, oh, it's a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly without ceasing. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before the question arises, it's already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. True faith leads to obedience. 
Obedience that springs from faith. Another way of saying this is we're not saved by works, but we're saved for works. Just think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It's right there, a verse hopefully you all know. For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're going to hear that message again and again and again the next several months. But the verse continues. That's 2, 8, 9. Verse 10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not a result of works, but for good works. And he's already lined them out for us. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. And James would say, if there are no works, the question ought to be asked, is your faith genuine? This is important for the Apostle Paul. In fact, and so important, keep your finger in Romans 1, but flip over to the end of the letter to the Romans. Chapter 16. Anytime you're reading any letter, it's pretty important to know what the letter starts with and what the letter ends with. And it's no different in the Bible. Oftentimes, there'll be summaries of the whole letter in the first few verses, and then he'll tell you what he all said in the last few verses. So here he begins, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, my aim is to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he's going to start in on his letter. But notice how he closes the letter in Romans chapter 16, verse 25. The doxology, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God, here it is, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ Amen. He begins and he ends. The goal of ministry and the goal of Book of Romans is to bring about the obedience that flows from saving faith. The old hymn nails it, right? Trust and obey. Trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. And that's really important for us to hear. Because God knows best. When we talk about obedience in the Christian life, we're talking about the path to life. We're talking about joy. Obedience is the path to blessing. Obedience is the path to joy. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. God is wiser than we are. He knows best and his ways are best. His ways are joy. And so how do we become more obedient? Remember, Paul's, Paul's got a letter here. He's got an argument here in Romans. And so what's his aim? He wants to bring about the obedience that comes from faith. How do we get there? Well, think about the structure of the book of Romans. If you know it, we're going to talk about sin for three chapters. Then we're going to talk about grace for about six chapters, seven chapters, eight chapters. We're going to talk about the gospel all the way up until the end of chapter 11. So how do we get about obedience? How does God the Spirit produce obedience? Gospel. You know, the first command won't come till chapter 6, and it's really just a, a small one. The real commands don't start until chapter 12. How do we produce obedience? The gospel is what produces obedience. Are commands necessary? Absolutely. We need commands. But at the end of the day, commands don't produce obedience. 
They, they, they keep us in. Think about them like a train track. The commands of the Lord are a train track that keep us in line. But what is going to fuel obedience is grace. The grace of God is the engine. As Titus 2 puts it, the grace of God trains us to renounce ungodliness. Look, look at verse 5 once again. He's not finished. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship in order to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The aim is obedience and the goal of the gospel is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is all for the sake of his name, for the sake of Christ our King. Paul didn't view his ministry or this letter primarily for the benefit of the people. Certainly not for himself, certainly not to please people, but for the sake of Christ. For the sake of his name and everything we do, our aim is to please him. 2 Corinthians 5.9 to make him central. This is God the Father's will, that our lives be centered on Jesus Christ. Think about Ephesians 1. What's God's plan? What's God's purpose? He tells us to unite all things in the Son. That's what God is about. What does that mean for our lives? That we submit every area of our lives to his lordship, not just an hour on Sunday morning. Everything we do and all we do, we want to make it our aim to please him. It's the Father's will to unite all things in Jesus. Philippians 2, he tells us that the Father's given the Son the name that is above all names. So that one day, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's for the sake of him. It's all for the sake of him. To bring about obedience for the sake of Jesus. And he says, among all the nations, the gospel has a universal scope. All are welcome, regardless of ethnic background. Of course, this is what got Jesus in trouble, isn't it? Think about the Gospels. What often got Jesus in trouble? For inviting the outsiders to the table, right? Expanding the boundaries of the kingdom beyond the nation of Israel. But that was always God's plan. Book of Genesis, right? Promises to Abraham. Abrahamic covenants. Genesis 12, all the nations will be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Genesis 18, verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations, same terminology we read in Romans 1, 5, shall be blessed in him. This was always God's plan right from the beginning. The reason God formed the Jewish people was for the sake of the nations. Right here in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, I will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Romans, we've already seen, is about God keeping his promises to David. Not only that, it's about God keeping his promises to Abraham. Let me read from Romans 15 again towards the end. He already said all nations in 16, but Romans 15, 8 says this. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, that's the Jewish people, in order to show God's truthfulness. What is Romans about? Showing God's truthfulness. He makes promises and he keeps them. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in order that the Gentiles, the nations, might glorify God for his mercy. That's the goal, in order to confirm the promises, blessings to the world, which includes us, through Israel's king, the Messiah. 
Look at verse 6. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Among all the nations and you. And then he really describes us in four ways here. First, he says we're called. We're called to belong to Jesus Christ. Just like when Paul was called to be an apostle, we're called to belong to the Lord. We belong. We belong because we're called. Paul uses this word call three times in Romans. It's a real specific meaning. It's an effective call. It's not merely a casual invitation. It's a powerful and irresistible summons by God the Spirit in grace to save his people. A little bit later in Romans chapter 8, we're going to see the golden chain of redemption. It goes like this. Those whom, starting in eternity past, those whom he predestined, he also called. There's our word, same word. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God calls us effectively to be the people of Jesus. The spirit to the church in Corinth says the gospel is a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both from Jews and from Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So first thing, we're effectively summoned to belong to the Lord. Second thing says here, we're loved by God to all those who are loved by God. And the love of God is a huge theme in the book of Romans. We've often in our culture got to define it against what the cultural definition is that God has warm, positive feelings about you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It's more than that in the Bible. In the Bible, the love of God is defined through and by and in the cross of Christ. How do we know God loves us? The cross. Flip over a few pages of Romans chapter 5. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of a son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received reconciliation. If you're in Christ, though you were formerly weak and formerly a sinner and formerly even an enemy, now you are loved by God. You're called to belong to Jesus and you're loved by the Lord. Paul begins this masterpiece of a letter wanting you to know that you belong to the Lord and he loves you if you've trusted in Christ. Third thing, we're called, same word, we're called to be saints, he says. And maybe you have a Catholic background and you're used to thinking of a, a different type of system for sainthood. There's really no basis for the Roman Catholic system of sainthood. In the New Testament, every single Christian is a saint. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're a saint, not by virtue of what you've done, but by virtue of grace, 
If you've believed in Jesus, the spirit has indwelt you and set you apart. That's really what the word means, to be set apart. You're a saint. You've been called to be a saint. Fourth thing, we enjoy grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, then peace. Peace with God and peace with each other. Grace, again, God's undeserved favor and love, his free justification of sinners and peace with God. Again, we just saw we were formerly enemies. If you don't know the Lord, your fundamental problem this morning is you're an enemy of God. And the best news you can hear is you can have peace with God this morning through our Lord Jesus Christ. Peace with one another, Jews and Gentiles especially, as we'll see, in one body through the cross. That's Romans 1 to 7. 426 verses to go. John Stott puts it this way. These verses are so important because we learn that the good news is the gospel of God. About Christ. According to scripture. For the nations. Unto the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Let's zoom out for a minute. Let's keep the big picture. And let's ask what is God up to in the world? He created his people. He preserved his people. He made promises to his people. Now he's keeping those promises. He sent Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, to die, to be raised. And now he sends us. And what he's doing through us is he's gathering a people from all nations, a people that is to be characterized by faith and obedience for the sake of his name. This is what God is doing. And what, what is our role then? And what he's doing. Well, I think we can learn four things from these first introductory verses on our role. First, to use the language of our core values, we love the Lord. We love Jesus. We must be fully devoted to him. Right? He starts out in verse 1. He calls himself a slave of Christ Jesus. First Corinthians calls all Christians slaves. So first thing, we love Jesus. And by love, what we mean is fully devoted to the Lord. Submitting every area of our lives to his lordship because of who he is. He's the son of David. He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. So everything in our lives need to be centered on him. The gospel concerns this son whom we worship in all of life. Second thing is we find our identity not by anything about us, but in the Lord. We're slaves of Jesus Christ. Or another way to put it in this text is we're called to belong to him. We're called to be saints. We then go and we do what we do because of who he has made us to be. Our identity precedes our activity. And then third, another core value, we reach people. Called to be a missional people. Aiming to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. All nations. Everywhere. Which is why we're so eager to send people out and support people who go. Fellers went a year ago. Tori Schmidt's there now. I wonder if the Lord's calling you. Are you wrestling with a call to go for the sake of the nations? Well, read no further. This is the call, and God's going to go, and he's going to call others through your ministry. And here in Abilene, here in Abilene, we need to be bold. It's not enough to say, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian, and leave the conversation with our loved ones, with our family and our friends and coworkers. We need to be bold and realize that God isn't after mere decisions God is after a life that is transformed by the gospel. Faith that leads to obedience. And so we tell them the truth and we ask hard questions and we don't settle for, yeah, I go to church on occasion, but we ask questions like, well, why do you think you're a Christian? 
That's the most loving thing we can do. And the Lord just may use that question to get someone to examine themselves. And why, why do I think I'm born again? Listen, brothers and sisters, I needed more than anything in my life for someone to come to me when I was in high school and grab me by the neck and say, you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Look at your life. And so as we seek to bring it about, we have a role to play. And it's going to require boldness. And listen, oftentimes it won't be received well. And we've just got to get over that, right? Because the, the most loving thing we can do is to nudge people toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Always with humility, but a boldness in the midst of that humility. If there's no obedience, if their lives look no different than a pagan neighbor's, we have reason to ask, are they truly born again? So we reach people, fourth thing, another core value, we know truth. This gospel is the gospel of God. We are stewards of the message we have been delivered to us, the message we have received. It's his message. And so we're called to guard it and we're called to share it, not modify it and not hide it. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So I wonder where you are this morning. I wonder, do you know for sure that you've been converted? See, the Spirit of God desires for his children to have assurance. We're going to get there later, Romans 8. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It's through the Spirit that we cry, Abba, Father. And so if you lack assurance, make it right today. If you don't know whether you know the Lord, make it right. Don't wait. Don't tarry. Where are you this morning? I want to read from a book really good book. It's in this nine mark series that we often promote. It's called Conversion. I want to read a section from it. What does a false convert look like? And again, this was me up until my freshman year of college. Maybe that's you and the Lord will rescue you today. What does a false convert look like? Often it's someone who is excited about heaven, but bored by Christians and the local church. Someone that thinks heaven will be great, whether God is there or not. Someone who likes Jesus, but didn't sign up for the rest. Obedience, holiness, discipleship, suffering. Someone who can't tell the difference between obedience motivated by love and mo obedience motivated by legalism. Someone who's bothered by other people's sin more than his or her own sin. Someone who holds grace cheap and their own comfort costly. But how does the New Testament describe a genuine Christian? According to 1 John, so just really looking at one book here, the genuine Christian is someone who loves fellow Christians in the local church because he or she loves God. Desires fellowship with God and not just ease in heaven. Understands that following Jesus means discipleship. And part of discipleship is teaching others to obey, helping others follow Jesus. Disciples, genuine disciples are those who make disciples. Someone who obeys God out of love for God. Someone who's eager to confess and turn away from his or her sin. Someone who holds grace costly and his own desires cheap. 
To become a Christian is to take up a life of repentance. Jesus described it as taking up our cross and following him. It begins at a point in time, but it continues in a life of service and love to God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it well when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When we come to the Lord, it's the end of us. It's the end of our agenda. That's what he means when he says, take up your cross, take up your instruments of execution. And so maybe you don't know, maybe you're a false convert in here this morning. Today, resolve to trust in the Lord and turn from sin. Today is the day to turn to him. You can do it right where you are. Tell somebody about it. Tell a friend about it. Maybe you're here and you know you don't know the Lord. Today is the day of salvation. Your biggest problem is that you're an enemy of God. He will return and judge you in your sin. The good news of the gospel He sent his son to be received by faith. So your first step is to turn. It's one turning. You're turning from sin to the Lord. Maybe you need to do that today. Again, you can do that right where you are. Trust in the Lord. If you have questions, you're not sure, but you're intrigued, I'd love to talk with you. Any of our ministers, elders would love to talk with you more about that. But I'd say, don't tarry. Don't tarry. Don't wait. There's no more important decision you can make in the world is to begin a life of submitting all areas to his lordship. The next step, if you do that, the next step is to go public. And in the scripture, going public means believer's baptism. So let us know if that's you. I want us to take a moment. I think all of us have a way to respond this morning. So let's just take a minute before we continue to worship through song and just ask, where are you at? Are you in this thing? Is your life being transformed? Are you submitting to the Lord?